So as we go into this sermon today, what we're actually looking at is a prayer. It's a prayer because we're, we're this intimate time with God. Um, I love that song that just, you can feel like God surrounds you. We're, we're looking at us as a conduit between heaven and earth. And so there's these two layers and we exist there. We were placed in these two layers to bring them together. And so we're looking at Psalm 19 <clears throat> and I'll read it for us. This is for the music director. It's a Psalm of David. And so it's interesting that you can sing your prayer. They would sing prayers to God. They would speak of things and, and they would, they would rejoice and, and sing these prayers. And so it starts off with, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. Day after day, it speaks out. Night after night, it reveals his greatness. There is no actual speech or word, nor is its voice literally heard. Yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. In the sky, he has pitched a tent for the sun. Like a bridegroom, it emerges from its chamber. Like a strong man, it enjoys running its course. It emerges from the distant horizon and goes from one end of the sky to the other. Nothing can escape its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect and preserves one's life. The rules set down by the Lord are reliable and impart wisdom to the inexperienced. The Lord's precepts are fair and make one joyful. The Lord's commands are pure and give insight for life. The commands to fear the Lord are right and endure forever. The judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and absolutely just. They are of greater value than gold, than even a great amount of pure gold. They bring greater delight than honey, than even the sweetest honey from a honeycomb. Yes, your servant finds moral guidance there. Those who obey them receive a rich reward. Who can know all his errors? Please don't punish me for my sins that I am unaware of. Moreover, keep me from committing flagrant sins. Do not allow such sins to control me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of blatant rebellion. May my words and my thoughts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my sheltering rock and my redeemer. This is a beautiful, intricate poem. Um, our attention is drawn on this side to the sun. He talks about creation. Creation's amazing. And you know what there is, is there's a sun. And the sun comes up and it covers everything. It goes from one end of the sky to the other. Nothing escapes the sun. And then he suddenly jumps to the law. The law of God is great. But what we find is that he's doing it, he's equating these two. Just as the sun covers everything and everything is touched by the sun, so the law comes into our lives. The guidance of God comes in and illuminates everything in our lives. There's nothing in us that is untouched by God's guidance. This poem, this psalm, was called by C.S. Lewis, the greatest poem ever written in any language because he loved the beauty of it. He loved the beauty of this psalm. And so we, the psalmist, he ties the, the 
sun and its illumination to the law and God's guidance and his illumination for us. Oftentimes we hear of the law and we think of oppression. We think of the police officer that's going to pull me over to enforce the speed law. We think of, we think of this oppressive thing. And what the psalmist says is God's instruction, God's guidance is not like that. God, it comes into my life and it lays bare everything. In this prayer, we see that, that in chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, the psalmist says, day after day, it speaks out. He's talking about creation. And so day after day, creation speaks out. Night after night, creation reveals God's greatness. But in verse 3, it says, yet it doesn't actually speak and it has no words. Its voice is not literally heard. What I've taken from these passages is the kind of life that I want to live. And this is the community that I want to have. That without even, without even words and a voice, we're speaking. The psalmist says creation is so powerful and so full of God, it doesn't even just say a word and it speaks volumes. That's what I would seek for this community. We're so full of, so, so full of God and his illumination that we don't even have to speak words. And yet our community and our lives speak volumes. And so I love how the psalmist calls this out, that something can be so great it doesn't even to speak, and yet it glorifies God. We often think of God as this entirely inconceivable being who's detached from creation. And, and so beyond just our own church, beyond just how I, I would in love for our community to be able to speak through just our lives and our community, the psalmist looks at something else. And he says, he, he talks about God's holiness and it's connected to creation. There was an era of time where deism reigned. And deism was a Christianity, but deism considered that God had started everything and then it just was running. And so they even called God the great clockmaker. He had made this clock that then just was ticking away and God was kind of distant from it. And the psalmist combats that. He actually says that when you stand in awe and you look up at the, at the stars and you just feel overwhelmed, when you look at the sun and you walk out, we've had like, I think it's the rainiest year on record. <laughs> and so when you go out on those sunny days and you just feel the sun and you feel that, oh, this is so great. You are physically sensing God's glory is what the psalmist is saying. And so there is not this distinction between God and his glory and his realm and creation. The psalmist is saying they're overlayered. And so when you feel the glory of creation, when you feel it's the, just its immensity, you are feeling God in that. And so just as we saying, we're surrounded by God, that can be a physical feeling. You can feel that when the sun shines on you. You can feel that at, on a clear night when you just look at the stars and you're just overwhelmed. That is God's glory throughout creation. To look at God as, as distinct from creation, it's a philosophical choice. And it's a Western world choice. The Eastern world doesn't see things as, as divided as that. 
but it's been a Western world choice. And it's a choice that even many churches have chosen. And I think I just love how, when we read this, it pulls us back to what I believe is reality, man, I can go out. And when I feel that sun break through the rain, the Oregon rain, I feel God coming into here, coming into my life and, and just touching me, his glory through his creation. As we look at creation, this poem, and we focus on the sun, what's interesting is the sun, it, it comes out boldly. It sounds like a strong man running a race. He has confidence. He's, he, he's walking out boldly. And it is on that idea of just boldness that he introduces the instruction of God. And so as the sun boldly comes to illuminate everything, God's instruction can come boldly to us. His guidance can become bold in our lives. And so he's painting this great picture between creation and God's law. And this beauty of this, of this connection is what even C.S. Lewis just fell in love with this poem. C.S. Lewis knew thousands of poems by heart. So for him to say this is the best poem ever written is a big deal. And what we read in verse seven, as we're continuing this connection between the sun and God's instructions, is that in verse seven, it says, God's instructions preserve life. And just as the sun is crucial for ongoing life. So the psalmist continues to paint this picture. God's instructions bring life. The sun brings life. And then he says, the law is dependable. And he's saying the sun is dependable. It will go from end of end, from one end of the sky to the other, and it will illuminate everything. The sun is dependable. God's instructions are dependable. In verse eight, it says, the law makes one happy. God's guidance, hearing him guide us through our lives is, makes us happy. Just as the sun makes us feel better. Back then, they didn't understand about vitamin D and all that stuff. But you just know when you feel the sun and the warmth, it makes you feel better. And so he's continuing this connection and it's this close intricate connection that I think we, we lose in our air conditioned world and everything else. An agrarian society with cold desert nights and everything, they would have just seen how beautiful this was. He continues in verse eight and says, the law gives us illumination. I mean, this is a blatant <laughs> connection. The sun gives us illumination. And so he's continuing this connection. And seeing how great God's law is, what we find in verse nine is that we see how great God's law is. And so it makes us honor God. The term in our Bible is typically fear. It makes us fear God. When the ancients spoke of fear, though, it was not like a horror movie induced fear of terror. Fear was a respect. Fear was a respect that here's something so powerful I dare not take it for granted. I used to love to race cars, had my own Camaro that I fixed up and we'd take it to a drag strip. And you just get behind a powerful car and, and there's a level of fear and respect for what this thing can do. It's not terror like a horror movie. It's just a respect because you just feel the power. And that's what this ancient idea of fear was. I can see how great and how glorified God is so there's just a little bit of fear, a little bit of 
takes me down a notch and just, I just respect him because he's so big. And what we see is that we find God to be trustworthy and just. That's what the psalmist says. He says, God's trustworthy and just. And really he's given us his law to reward us. But when we come towards the end of this great analogy of the law and the son and how great the law is. And so God's instructions are so great. And I, and I have a reference for God. What he then admits in verse 12 is, but I got blind spots. In verse 12, he speaks of the reality that we don't even know our own faults. We all have blind spots and things that we just don't know. T.S. Eliot, he actually wrote on this. He wrote about how with age, you can look back at things you did and just go, oh boy, I did that. And you thought it was so great when you were younger. And with age just comes this wisdom to realize, man, I, I thought I knew things. And as I get older, those things weren't so great. There were some holes in my thinking. There were some issues there, but I was blind to them when I was younger. And this is what the psalmist says. No matter how old we survive on earth, there's gonna still be some blind spots. And so the psalmist tells God, God, have patience for me. I love your instruction. I love you speaking to me. I love you illuminating my life. But as a human being, I can be a little dense. So please just have some patience for me. And so in many ways, I could still be going wrong. N.T. Wright is one of my favorite theologians. And he always started a, a class off with this idea. He would tell his students, all right, I'm going to teach you what I know. And about 10% of it's wrong. The problem is I don't know what 10%. So he taught his students and he was just like, I know there's something wrong in this. And so his students would carry it forward. He expected his students to look at what he had and check it. And so this is just what the psalmist is saying. I know I'm doing something wrong. I just may not always be aware of it. And in verse 13, he does say though, there are things that I know are wrong. Give me strength not to do those. Help me not to do those. Doesn't mean we're gonna do it perfectly, but he's begging God for strength. He's depending on God. Because what we find is that the poet's desire is to live a life for God. Up to this point in the prayer, the poet's been weaving together the sun with God's law. But what we can often encounter in the evangelical church is, but wait, isn't the law bad? Doesn't the New Testament speak about the law in negative terms? And that's really not quite how things work. Often in the evangelical church, there's this division. But if we look at John chapter one, verses 16 through 17, what we're told is that, for we have all received from his fullness, one gracious gift after another. First was the law of Moses, and then grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is we received grace after grace. And so he's calling the law grace. This passage tells us that the law was as much a gracious gift of God as Jesus was. And that's not often how we picture things now. Our view of the law was colored through this reformation 
I would call it a misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding said that the law was the polar opposite of grace. And so it divides history into this is when everybody lived under the law and things were brutal. And this is the law of, this is now the age of grace. And that's where the Reformation divided their understanding of things. But what we find in John's gospel is that John's saying the law was grace and Jesus is grace. It's always been grace all along. And here's where the distinction lies. In the Reformation, they opposed law and grace. But what really happened was that God's people were already God's people. The Reformation said God gave people the law in the Old Testament. And to be God's people, you had to follow the law. And that's how you were one of God's people. But the people that were given the law were already God's people. They didn't need the law to be saved. They'd already been saved out of Egypt. And so keeping the law didn't make you God's people. Being God's people meant that you were then going to be entrusted with God's guidance. It was a gift of being his people. In other words, following the law didn't get you in, but having been given the law, it was a badge of honor to say, I have the law. This is evidence that God loves me and I am God's people. So the people in the Old Testament, they wore God's instruction as a badge of honor. And this is why in Psalm 19, they love it. This is not how I become God's people, but this is, this is the seal God has given me to show that I'm in his people. It was special to them. We can compare this to our time, now we, how we live as Christians. We believe that as we're saved, God then writes his instructions on our heart. And so despite how poorly the church has done it over the years, we are entrusted with things to do, like loving our neighbor. And so we don't love our neighbor to become a Christian, but because we are a Christian, we have been entrusted to love our neighbor. There's one other thing to consider as we look at this. We're diving a little deep into this one, but I want to look at this imagery because it, if there was something I'd point you to, if you're just, I don't even know what to pray right now. Psalm 19 is a great one just to bookmark in your Bible because it directs you to, you know how you can pray? Look at the glory of God in creation and pray to him. So I want to look at this deeply. And there's another interesting thing that the ancient people ran into. For them, the gods were a mystery. As we've looked at in, in ancient religions, humanity, Humanity was believed to be an afterthought of the gods. They were created to do the tasks that gods didn't want. In the ancient religions, they talked about how the gods considered humans to be just this annoying, squabbling little creation down here. Like when a baby's just crying and just gets on your last nerves and, and, it's, just, and it, it's just, it's killing you to just listen to the screaming. That's how the ancients considered gods saw humans at times. And so we've looked at how the high place of humanity uh, that opposes that in the Christian faith. But one of the greatest issues with the ancients 
was that they lived with no clear communication from their gods. They struggled to even know their gods' names, let alone the will of their gods. There's an ancient prayer that is typical of the Assyrian Babylonian literature. There's an ancient prayer, and this prayer is called the prayer to any God. And this is how the prayer goes. May my Lord's anger be, may, may my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I don't know be reconciled. May the goddess I don't know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. Oh, my Lord, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. Oh, my God, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. Oh, my goddess, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. Oh, God, wherever you are, many are my wrongs and great are my sins. Oh, goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs and great are my sins. I don't know what wrongs I've done, though. I don't know what sin I've committed. I don't know what abomination I have perpetrated. I don't know what taboo I have violated. We can hear the futility in the ancient religions. I don't even know who you are, but I'm pretty sure you're angry with me. And will you just please, I beg your forgiveness. But he doesn't even have guidance from his God to even know what he's done wrong. He's just like, I'm sure I've sinned. I'm sure you're angry with me. I don't even know where to start. And it's into this ancient world that the Israelites valued their law because their God told them his name and their God gave him his guidance. And so in verse 10, <clears throat> we find for the psalmist that having Yahweh, that's the name of their God, having Yahweh's instructions is worth more than gold. And we can now understand that because they aren't lost in the futility of the other ancient religions. And taking Yahweh's instructions in is better than taking in even the sweetest honey. <clears throat> As we close this prophetic prayer, this, this poetic prayer, what we've told God so far in this is that I love your guidance. And now we're saying I may not always follow it perfectly, but please bear with me and help me. And it closes with this desire. <clears throat> this is one of the, this is a famous verse that I know many pastors pray this verse before they get up to speak. And it's the verse, I'll just go back up and read it really quick. It's the verse, verse 14 that says, may my words and my thoughts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my sheltering rock and my redeemer. And so he said, God, I love it. I love your guidance. It's like the sun to me. And if I mess things up, have patience with me. And now we have this begging at the end, and this is beautiful. May my words and thoughts please God. And what our prayer is in that is that we want our outward expression to match our inward 
reflection. What an end to a prayer for a church in general in America, for a church, what a, what a prayer for a church that as a whole, it, it, it's fraught with inconsistencies between what people see in the outward conduct and what's going on behind closed doors until it's revealed. And so what a prayer that we want what's inside, what's going on here in private to match what's being expressed outwardly.